0: Welcome to Optimal NeuroSpine Podcast, a podcast about optimizing our brain and spine in health and disease. Each episode, leading neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, educators, patients, spine care, and quality improvement experts discuss their research, experience, emerging science, surgical advances, and insights about how to optimize neurological and spine care. Now, here's your host, Dr. Max Boyacci.
1: Welcome to the Optimal Neurospine Podcast. My distinguished guest today is Dr. Joseph Nemat. Out of disclosure, he's my chair of neurosurgery at the University of Louisville. Dr. Nemat is a functional neurosurgeon and a clinician scientist. He is the Norton professor and chairman of neurosurgery at the University of Louisville. His uh, current research interests include investigation of the affective and cognitive properties of the basal ganglia, structures located deep in the brain that are responsible for normal movement. He also has research interests in creating novel devices for epilepsy and movement disorders. He has conducted research In robotic surgical applications of deep brain stimulators, innovations in the imaging space and application of artificial intelligence in creating imaging uh, uh, space innovations, he has a busy clinical practice. In treating movement disorders. We will be talking to him today about the future of functional neurosurgery and about his research and about his thoughts about innovation in neurosurgery. Dr. Nemat, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, Max. Thank you.
1: Let's start by telling us a little bit about your current day-to-day clinical practice. What types of patients do you treat? What types of conditions do you treat?
2: I sort of pride myself on trying to do all areas of functional neurosurgery, which right now includes movement disorders and deep brain stimulation, epilepsy, which includes stereo EEG, resective surgeries, and sometimes stereotactic ablation, and neuromodulation for epilepsy, including VNS, RNS, responsive neurostimulation, and DBS, and, and then also pain, which includes trigeminal neuralgia, both uh, open surgical treatments, percutaneous treatments, and radiosurgery, and then some more complex pain, things like cingulotomy, nucleus caudalis dress, and, and even the you know occasional spinal stimulator as well.
1: What is the most common movement disorder that you treat?
2: Primarily Parkinson's disease. That is the most common movement disorder to come to surgery, although it is less common. Then essential tremor, which is you know, meant to be 10 times more common in the population, but probably makes up somewhat fewer of our patients that, that come to surgery for a variety of reasons that we can discuss. But it's a pretty good balance. We do a fair amount of, of essential tremor, a fair amount of Parkinson's disease, a bit less, Estonia, which is rare, a rare disease. And then very occasionally we do things like Tourette's syndrome. I've also been involved in trials for using DBS4. Depression and OCD, and uh, a large part of my original research was sort of focused on on those questions of uh, circuits serving mood and cognition in the basal ganglia.
1: You have been a successful clinician scientist. You have a busy lab. You have received multiple funding from the National Institutes of Health. What is the focus of your research?
2: Uh, sure. So I have a handful of, of foci. So the one that kind of came out of my clinical interest in Deep brain stimulation for psychiatric disease and for movement disorders was a a study of the role of the basal ganglia in serving emotion and cognition. To that end, I and and several collaborators, Nelika Van Waal and Scott Wiley, are looking at the basal ganglia and its effects on a property called inhibitory control, which is your ability to pick from among potential motor actions or to quickly stop an action that, that may be countermanded by the situation that you find yourselves in. That's kind of a reductionist way of looking at the larger question which we wanted to ask was, you know, how does cognition work? What does the basal ganglia do? What is this relationship? We seem to have a very similar mechanism that serves movement disorders and things like depression and OCD. You know, how can it be that the same mechanism serves both of those what on the surface seem to be very different diseases? That's sort of where that interest came from.
1: What drew you to the field of functional neurosurgery? Why did you decide to specialize in in functional neurosurgery? Yeah, you know,
2: when I was a resident, I liked a lot of different things that I did. I mean, I I certainly enjoyed brain tumors and vascular surgery and spine and and such. Functional neurosurgery, you know, I had a research interest in systems neuroscience and sort of understanding the, the neurophysiological functioning of the brain. And was doing some research on that, uh, you know actually studying the basal ganglia at that time using a primate model. And uh, you know, as I looked at sort of the opportunities that I would have to marry a, a clinical career and a research career, functional neurosurgery seemed to be a place where those things were very closely aligned, which is not to say that it doesn't happen in other other areas of neurosurgery or other areas of medicine, but it but it just seemed like a very natural fit to I was working in a lab that was doing behavioral Testing in primates and and I could translate those very same studies into the o r and then run those same studies you know in a, in a DBS surgery on a human subject and so that was very exciting to me. That opportunity really struck me so that 's that's, that's what kind of sold me I think on functional neurosurgery
1: mm-hmm. How popular is functional neurosurgery among neurosurgical trainees? I think we're still in the minority.
2: We—I don't know the exact numbers. I can tell you that the membership of the ASSFN hovers around 600 individuals. So we're not a huge organization. Every year, I I certainly—I mean—I think we probably train, you know, 20 or so fellows in functional neurosurgery. So it's a—you know—it's a small group. It's not a huge group, but we do think it's one that will grow over, you know, future decades as the applications of these interventions are, are much more common. I think that we're going to be doing. Uh, you know, quite a lot more deep brain stimulation and other forms of functional neurosurgery. And, and so I think that people will find themselves just doing more of that.
1: Mm-hmm. The organization that you mentioned, you are the current president of that organization?
2: I, uh, yeah, I've been president for about a year.
1: Let's talk about progress in functional neurosurgery. Have there been any breakthroughs in scientific understanding of movement disorders?
2: There have been, yeah. I, I think that it's an interesting thing that, you know, sort of paralleling the, the my thoughts on how I went into this field, I think that we have learned so much about the neurophysiology of the brain actually from the surgeries themselves. We, you know, curiously, people have been intervening, surgeons, you know, since Irving Cooper have been intervening in the function of the basal ganglia to treat tremor and Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. The understanding of these circuits was, you know, was relatively mature, even, you know, that was 70 years ago. So, you know, even 70 years ago, people understood enough that they could intervene effectively in, you know, in the brain to treat these diseases. That was matured, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s with the advent of deep brain stimulation. Although stimulation had been performed before, it was really with uh, with Benevid that sort of was uh, championed and became the mainstay. Of our surgical interventions. In the last decade, I would say, we really have matured our understanding of what that deep brain stimulation is doing. For a long time, we were somewhat uncertain about the mechanism. It seemed to create what we were calling a functional lesion. It behaved as if you were ablating the cells that you were stimulating. And so even the term stimulation was sometimes thought to be something of a misnomer. It wasn't clear what we were doing. I think in the last decade, through a number of studies, Phil Starr and others uh, you know, have, uh, have really found that what we seem to be doing is manipulating uh, these aberrant oscillations that occur between the basal ganglia and cortex. And I think that recognition is really doing quite a lot to shape the future field of functional neurosurgery.
1: So would you say there are some conditions that we definitely are treating better now than we did a decade or two ago?
2: I think so. I mean, I I think that we have seen the application of DBS to more diseases, not all of them perfectly. We're still working out some of those, like depression. We certainly, I think, are more efficient in the way that we treat the diseases that we've treated well, like Parkinson's and the central tremor. I think we are becoming more knowledgeable about how exactly we are intervening. and And I think we're sort of on the cusp, of a very significant change. If there has been sort of incremental change in the benefit to which we achieve disease control, I think it's going to change dramatically in the next decade as we really start to apply what we've recently learned to our devices. So we're just starting to see, you know, the the advent of novel patterns of stimulation, certainly in spinal stimulation, to some extent in deep brain stimulation. We are just introducing the first Closed loop stimulators, you know, the first being used in epilepsy with the RNS NeuroPace device and now with uh, novel devices that, that promise that, although they haven't been completely developed just yet. I think closed loop stimulation is really going to be the future of functional neurosurgery, the ability to read meaningful signal from the brain and adjust it in real time to you know make uh, stimulation adjustments that respond meaningfully to the way the brain is performing.
1: That's exciting. So, when you think of the future of neurosurgery, of functional neurosurgery, what is it that gets you the most excited?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's, it's this, um, you know, this idea of an intricate interplay between our interventions and the function of the brain itself. Thus far, we really have been, if you look at most of our functional neurosurgery interventions, they, they can be achieved really just with ablation, right? I mean, you, you can control tremor with ablation, you can treat some of the, you know, cardinal symptoms of Parkinson's disease with ablation. You can treat epilepsy with ablation or resection. That's not a very mature way to interface with this tremendously intricate and complex structure. We're just now beginning to understand how the brain may actually work, or at least some of the signals that uh, connote different forms of activity. And so, as we understand that, we can now perform more meaningful interventions with stimulation. We can apply stimulation in a, in a patterned way that augments what the brain is trying to do. I, I find that tremendously exciting. Not, not to mention what that might achieve in furthering the understanding of the brain and its function. I think that's also very exciting. They sort of go hand in hand.
1: In many fields, there's been a revolution in personalized medicine and the impact of personalized medicine. How has this impacted the, the field of functional neurosurgery?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's been inherent in functional neurosurgery for some time in the sense that we, you know, as part of our surgeries for the longest time, we have, we have sought to sort of map the brain and apply our interventions precisely. Each individual has a, you know, a slightly different anatomy as far as their, their basal ganglia circuits and, and sort of the extent that we try in each case to apply them with the patient awake, looking at their physiology precisely, th- that is a form of personalization. You know, of course, that can exist on many levels. We are understanding these diseases better. We are, you know, acknowledging, you know, genetic propensities toward disease in one way or another. And so that may also influence how we think about, you know, what those different disease subtypes mean as far as progression and response. So we, we are further able to sort of think about it as it pertains to each individual patient when we think about our therapies.
1: Can you comment on some of the technological advancements that are being used in functional neurosurgery such as ultrasound the ability to turn neurons off and on can you comment on some of these developments
2: Yeah absolutely so I mean so, yeah there's been it's hard to think of all the things that have been applied to functional neurosurgery Let's take focused ultrasound for an example. We have for years been able to ablate circuits in the brain and and effectively control tremor, for example. I think functional ultrasound is a very nice innovation in that space, although the end point of that therapy is the same ablation. We can now do it in a very minimally invasive way without making an incision, without drilling a hole, and that's a significant advantage. What I think is most interesting in focused ultrasound is its application both to other targets, potentially for chronic pain, for brain tumors, for epilepsy, and even for things like people have been exploring its use as a as a tool for what we call a liquid biopsy, where we, we do an endovascular sampling of the vessels around a brain tumor and, and heat it slightly just enough to disrupt the blood-brain barrier, either to do a biopsy to sample some of the factors that might indicate what the tumor is and or to treat perhaps by breaking the blood-brain barrier and then treating with local chemotherapeutic agents that would be more effective. So I think that is very exciting. In epilepsy, also, you know, stereotactic ablation, laser ablation, I think has really changed the field pretty dramatically. Many things that we used to do with open resection, we now are able to do with laser ablation, you know, and have the patient out the next day with just a very small single-stitch incision. And so that, again, is advantageous. The one that I've spoken about the most maybe is this idea of closed-loop stimulation. I really do think that that promises to be a game-changer for functional neurosurgery. The ability to match stimulation to the physiological profile at any given second is going to be much more effective and really will allow us to treat diseases that right now we're not treating as well.
1: And of course, brain-computer interface, which was a subject of two previous podcasts that I did, that falls within the domain of functional neurosurgery too. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I think so. I you know I think all of these things in a way are are, you know, at least all the stimulation things that we've talked about are a form of brain-computer interface. I think, you know, we, we sort of think of it as implants for patients who have perhaps spinal cord injury or brain injury and, and the ability to drive robots or, or computer Driven cursors, and et cetera. I think, in a broader perspective, the ability to, on many fronts, to restore sensation, to restore sight. There's you know, ongoing trials of being able to restore sight to patients who have been blind, to restore hearing, to treat, you know, diseases of tinnitus, et cetera, to interpret language with cortical implants. Certainly, to drive, you know, motor prostheses. All of those things, I think, are a form of brain-computer interface. The traditional DBS that we've been doing certainly is a a simplified form of a brain-computer interface. As we become sort of more intelligent about the way we stimulate, I think those closed-loop devices will fundamentally restore function in a way that marries brains and computers. And I think that will be sort of a very natural thing for the future. One other thing to touch on is that we may come to a point where we are augmenting the brain with computers. And, and that will be a very interesting thing. There are already studies that have demonstrated the ability to improve memory through stimulation of the fornix. It's possible to, you know, use brain computer interfaces to provide extra sensory, you know, additional sensory perceptions that, that we don't currently have to, you know, to see in the infrared spectrum or other things. And, and so it, it would not be surprising to me if we sort of have a form of brain plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery where we are augmenting our abilities with novel devices.
1: Obesity and depression are one of the two conditions that affect a majority of the human race. Can you update on the current status of functional neurosurgical treatments for obesity and depression?
2: Obesity, I mean, there have been a number of small trials with some successes. I'm not aware of any large-scale trial yet to treat obesity. On the flip side, cingulate stimulation, CG25 stimulation, has been used effectively to treat anorexia. And so we may be able to treat these are both ends of that spectrum. I, I think the challenge there is, is identifying what that disease is. So, you know, there, there are acids. So some of the trials that have gone on are, are directly treating appetite or hypothalamic stimulation that it alters one's drive to eat. At the same time, there's an element of addiction, both in some forms of obesity and in some forms of eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. And so addressing that with stimulation of the nucleus accumbens or cingulate area, you know, may may also be important. Uh, And so I I think the next step for those interventions will be sort of a more nuanced understanding of what the disease itself is derived from, and it may be different in different patients. You may have patients who, you know, some who have a more addictive obesity and others who have a more appetite of obesity, and that, that may take a more nuanced intervention. As far as depression goes, so depression is, there's sort of a, you know, a storied history of the trials that have been done for that, uh, you know, both Medtronic and St. Jude, now Abbott, have, have done trials for depression in the U.S. In, in other countries, it has been Approved, you know, in Europe and in Canada, but in the U.S., those trials were halted, and they, 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 you know, for a variety of reasons, we think that they just did not consistently demonstrate the effect that we wanted to see, which we saw very clearly in some patients. There are a combination of reasons for that. One is probably patient selection, another maybe target identification. It was about 10 years ago that those trials were halted. In the interim, there have been a number of things that I think have sort of uh, are promising to change that game a little bit. One is uh, novel forms of targeting being done at Emory and with the help of Cameron McIntyre, who's an imaging specialist who helps to sort of do DTI modeling of fields of stimulation. Through their work, they've been able to improve their efficacy substantially simply by identifying where the stimulation should be targeted in order to maximize Effect on the network that, that serves depression. And then a very exciting study that's uh, ongoing now through the work of Nader Paradian and uh, Samir Sheff is a sort of a more precise way of approaching patients and putting stereo EG electrodes like we use for epilepsy in different known targets in the brain that underlie depression. And this is a, again a, you know, a form of sort of personalized medicine to identify a patient's depression and look specifically at that individual and essentially map the network that underlies their depression, and then intervene with focal stimulation only in the area that is most meaningful for that patient. I think that's a a paradigm shift, potentially, if it's effective, uh, that could change the way we approach patients and promises to be much more effective than the DBS surgery we've done to date.
1: I would like to talk about a little bit more about your research. What is your best contribution? What would you consider to be your most important contribution in research that you're, you're proudest of? That's a good
2: question. You know, so I, I've enjoyed in my in my research career. There's sort of two areas that I've focused on. So one I, I had sort of touched on was studies looking at the effect of the basal ganglia in controlling emotion and and cognition. And, and uh, of those, there was a study we did some years ago where we actually identified cells in the cingulate gyrus. We were also looking in some of our patients who were undergoing surgery for depression. Uh, that explicitly coded individual emotions. There were cells that were precisely coded for sadness, or for melancholy, or for happiness, or for you know, there, there were or d- disgust. And so, I, I think that was an exciting finding that that I enjoyed being part of. On the other front, you know, so sort you of know, stepping away from that neurophysiology research, I was fortunate uh, in my time at Vanderbilt and since in my time here at University of Louisville to just run into some very capable engineers who had an interest in sort of developing techniques that could be used in neurosurgery. And so, you know, in my time at Vanderbilt, I was involved in two significant projects. One was working with Benoit DeWant and Pierre Haas, uh, developing a novel physiologically based atlas that essentially normalized the anatomy of different patients and allowed us to make predictions based on the last hundred plus patients that we had operated on of what the most efficacious targets would be. And using that algorithm, this sort of AI-based intervention, we were able to improve upon our targeting accuracy so that in the end, at one point, they essentially pitted the computer against me. And I, you know, like Casper and everyone else who's come up against computers, I was pretty soundly beaten by the computer targeting which was an exciting part of. Another project that, you know, again, sort of rose just out of a, a happenstance meeting between myself and, and an engineer by the name of Eric Barth was the development of uh, novel pneumatic robots that could be used for epilepsy surgery. I guess this was about 2011, 2012. Really, just as people were starting to do ablations for epilepsy with lasers, you know, we had the idea. They had two robots that we thought would work well together. One was... These steerable probes, they're, they're concatenated nitinol needles that can be inserted into tissue and can be steered in a very precise way so that they don't shear tissue, but, but just sort of follow along a path to, to a target. And then at the same time, Eric was, was developing these pneumatic robots. It's essentially a small plastic bellows that you can inflate under high pressure and that can move a probe in and out of the brain and can do so without any metal. So it can be used in an MRI environment. And so, we combined those technologies and had the idea of approaching epilepsy surgery not by drilling through the skull, but by entering through the foramen ovale. We've created something we call the Merlin robot, which is the, I forget the words now, uh, MRI-enabled, non-linear, robotic neurosurgery, I think is the the acronym. But but the Merlin robot essentially do without an incision what we do with our laser ablations. And so, we've just received NIH funding again to follow that research, and we're Continuing to collaborate on that, I've also been involved in some novel DBS devices that I'm excited about that I think in the next you know decade may may change the way we uh, we think about brain stimulation. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that, have, that, uh, I've been, that I've found that type of a collaboration working with you know some of these brilliant engineers who you know have technologies on the shelf that they don't quite know what to do with, and I find myself in the OR often saying, "Gee, I wish I had something to address this problem," and I just don't know how to fix it. Having those two people come together and sort of mull things over is a lot of fun, and I think sometimes can be very, very fruitful.
1: That's very uh, interesting. How do you innovate? Is there a process that you follow, or it just occurs to you out of the blue? Do you have a method to optimize innovation?
2: Yeah, I think it's a hard thing to do in a way. You know, so something that I wanted to do here when I became chair was to have a, a curriculum in innovation. You know, you've met Sean Glinter, who was a friend. From Nashville, who is a—he's an entrepreneur. He's started all kinds of medical companies, and some have done wonderfully well, and some have failed. And then he just knows the space very well. And he and I tried to sort of teach a course to the residents about you know how do you innovate and, and answer that very question. Well, you know, how do you get started? It's the sort of thing that if you if you sit down and you sort of say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to be creative, it becomes a very difficult thing to do. I think that innovation comes naturally. I think the trick is just being alert to it and looking for opportunities. We all have things in the course of any given day that frustrate us. And when you bump up against one of those more frequently, again and again, I think that's a time to sort of be alert to, okay, what what is it that is bothering me here? Are there other people for whom this is a problem? Can I think of any available solutions that might make this better? And if I can't, maybe maybe this collaboration with an engineer who, you know, has some fix up his sleeve that I don't have might lend itself to fixing this problem. I, I think, it, you know, it, it should be as simple as problem solving. It's just a question of sort of hitting on the right combination of an important problem and a good solution, an elegant solution.
1: So as Chair of Neurosurgery, you said you had a curriculum to teach residents. Have you had additional thoughts about, first of all, was it an effective way to do it? And uh, if not, have you had additional thoughts about how you might train the next generation of neuro innovators?
2: Yeah, I think parts of it were effective. I do think it generated some very interesting conversations. At the same time, just as you can't force innovation... I think you can't necessarily force people to think about innovation or to teach innovation. I, I think there was a, a feeling of pressure in the first year, at least, that we tried it of, you know, well, gee, am I expected to now have an invention? You know, residents would say to themselves, well, should I now have an invention that i I meant to be producing here that seems like a lot of pressure? So we've shaped it. I mean, I think we've tried to provide tools around the perimeter of innovation that are useful, right? So, you know, just just educating people on, you know, What does it look like to take a product from an idea to a trial, to a a prototype, to a trial, to FDA acceptance, to creating a company? Just educating people on what that is, it may be useful. Educating people generally on sort of the socioeconomics aspect of neurosurgery and and what we do, I, I think, helps residents and helps everyone sort of understand the broader implications of what we're doing and what needs to happen in order to get a new therapy. Off the ground. We've been involved in the last year. Something that I think has been very successful was working with medical students. We had a group of medical students that approached us with an interest in in creating a biodesign course. And they had a catchy title. They said they're going to call it Bluegrass Biodesign. And so working with them, and and they've been fantastic. I mean, so they engaged us, they engaged people at the School of Engineering, they engaged people in the business school, and they've worked out a pretty thoughtful curriculum where they, starting the summer, brought a group of 10 medical students who wanted to volunteer and be involved in this, broke them into groups, had them shadow us in the clinic, came up with a handful of ideas that we sort of sat around a table and brainstormed and then went off to the engineers and were given sort of tools to maybe address some of the problems they saw. I've been amazed. I mean, some of the things that they've come up with are very, very thoughtful. I think some of them do show real promise. And to be honest, the most important thing I did in in those conversations was just to take the pressure off. I, I said to that group early on, I said, hey, you know, we're we're unlikely to come up with the next, you know, electric toothbrush or whatever the next gizmo is that's going to change the world. We we just, you know, just think about the process. Think about enjoying this. Think think about, you know, learning from what you see and, and coming up with novel ideas. And it really has paid dividends. I think they're having a good time. I think they're learning a ton. And who knows, some of these ideas I think could really take off.
1: So the devices that you've created so far, what is the current status? How close are you to having these have practical impact on patients? Do you hold patents? Uh, where, is, where is it on the spectrum of tech transfer and device uh, development?
2: I share some patents with people that I've, I've worked with in the past, you know, with the, with the engineers and such. They're in various stages. So the, the work on computer-guided imaging and targeting has become a, a company that is independent called NeuroTargeting. And that works pretty closely with a number of other companies to sort of provide them uh, software support for, you know, novel devices with with different companies on the epilepsy robotic side that is still very much in the prototype phase. So we have a, a prototype that can do on a targeting mannequin, essentially what the surgery should be. And we've modeled what uh, that would look like in, in the brain. The next step is probably to do, take that to either animal or cadaver studies. And we just got a grant to do that. So we're, we're gearing up to, to follow that path. Some of the novel DBS devices that I've been involved in, we got an SBIR from the NIH to work on that. We've finished the, the phase one SBIR and we're entering into a phase two. Again, there we have a prototype of a novel a DBS device that's driven by ultrasound and uh hope to apply that to a sort of more advanced DBS stimulation. So at various steps, I, I don't have anything that you can buy off the shelf right now. It certainly hasn't made me a millionaire. I mean, I do these things really because I enjoy them. I've always, you know, I've always been quick to be open about the way we share it with the other people involved. I've, you know, I've been benefited by working with these brilliant engineers and I, I don't, you know, claim Any ownership, or you know, we've always had very good interactions. And I'll be thrilled if we get one of these things to to the place where it can help people. I think that would be a win. You know, whatever the success of the company, I think that would be would be exciting.
1: I definitely wish success for you in that endeavor. I want to talk about optimization of functional neurosurgery in just two areas. You're sticking. Functional neurosurgery involves implanting. Stimulators in the brain and really are, there are risks. Can you comment on efforts how what you've been the field is doing as a whole to reduce infection and hemorrhage rates? And the other topic that I want you to comment on is optimization of the treatment in terms of reducing racial and ethnic disparities in the treatment of parkinson's and movement disorders and and that sort of thing.
2: Sure. Yeah. Those are both, I think, very I mean, thoughtful and challenging challenges for our field. You know, so on the quality side, we have been looking at this for years and years. And I, and I do think that we are making incremental progress, you know, in the safety of our surgery. Certainly in the last 10 years, I think that the surgery has become much more safe and, and uh, even more efficacious, you know, through, through innovations in imaging, through innovations in frame technology, through potentially changes in the strategy with which electrodes are placed, all of those things have had an influence. It's also been helped, I think, by uh, some of these database efforts that we talked about. So the algorithm that we talked about, the AI algorithm that improves targeting, has been sort of packaged in something called the cranial vault atlas. And so through that technology, you can sort of look at a patient, use the computer to normalize their anatomy, and then make predictions about. Uh, how you do that surgery and what trajectory you should take and what is the safest thing. And and I think that promises a great deal in terms of safety because if you know where you need to be from the outset and it does a better job of predicting our target than we do, the, you know, surgeons, we can do that surgery more safely. That's going to be a, a major contributor to sort of improving the quality of, of these surgeries over the next decade. As far as, you know, racial and ethnic disparities, I mean, I I do think this is a significant problem. We do not, you know, reach populations equally in any disease, and that's true of Parkinson's disease and tremor. I think the challenge ahead of functional neurosurgery is making people aware of these therapies generally. We currently treat in Parkinson's disease uh, probably only about 10% of the patients that could be helped by it. With tremor, it's even less. There are tenfold more patients and fewer patients being treated. And so we have a a huge potential to help patients in the future. And and in doing so, I think we have to be mindful of how we reach out to populations, how we are balanced and how we are actually proactive in reaching out to populations that traditionally have not seen this kind of advanced care. And so that, I think, is something that we're working on every day. I think of it sort of patient by patient that you want to make sure you reach out and you treat every patient equally and fairly, and, and sometimes lay their concerns when there's distrust of the medical system because of historical missteps. I do think from a population perspective, we're going to have to be more proactive about how we reach out to patients. I think that's, that's critical.
1: So for the last question for you, if it's my magic wand question, so I ask every guest, if you had a magic wand, what would you like to see in the world of functional neurosurgery?
2: Yeah. So if I had a a magic wand, I would like to have a nuanced understanding of the way the brain functions. This is not not an easy magic wand trick, right? So this is, you know, I, I think to have a nuanced understanding of the way that the brain works, of how the circuitry, you know, serves each function and when function is disrupted, what represents that disruption, what change in firing underlies it, Uh, you know, then I think it would be a relatively easy, if you could sort of read the tea leaves in that way, then it's pretty simple to put the electrode where you need to fix it and, you know, send the the series of signals that would counterbalance whatever the misfunction is. That obviously is a sort of fantastical way of thinking about the brain and what we might do. But I think it's not that crazy. I think that we, we actually are slowly taking steps to do just that and i've seen it over the last decade you know in multiple different areas if you you know if you look at sensory phenomenon we are you know we are increasingly understanding how we might superimpose sensory phenomenon onto the brains through an electrical device and restore sight or restore sensation in patients that are paralyzed in motor phenomenon we are increasingly understanding and able to decode from the activity in cortex what the intended motor activity is, that is enabling things like, you know, the, the brain computer interfaces that we talked about. And in the basal ganglia is, is helping us correct motor disease. There's been phenomenal work by Eddie Chang and others, you know, looking at language cortex and face recognition and, and, and decoding the way that that is represented in the brain. So I, I think we are sort of slowly, step by step, sort of translating You know, there's no single Rosetta Stone yet, but, uh, you know, we, we are slowly translating what the brain is encoding. And as we are learning those things, we can interface with the brain in a much more meaningful way. That's the part of my field that I really look forward to over the next decade.
1: That brings us to the end of the interview. There has, this has been a fascinating conversation with Dr. Joseph Nemat, chair of neurosurgery at the University of Louisville. It's been a really great conversation about our introduction to his research in cognition and also his research and innovation and creation of uh, new medical devices for treating epilepsy and uh, movement disorders. Dr. Nimat, we really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us. It's been very illuminating. Thank you.
2: I just wanted to thank you in turn, Max. I mean, it's been a pleasure to be interviewed in this way. And I think you're doing a great service to the neurosurgical community to sort of challenge us to think not just about what it is that we're doing, but how to optimize it, how to improve the quality that we provide for our patients. And, and so thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate that.
0: Thanks for listening to Optimal NeuroSpine Podcast with Dr. Max Boacci. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you share it with others. Leave us positive reviews on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Check out our website, maxwellboachi.com slash podcasts for show transcripts and other information. Join us next time for another edition of Optimal Neurospine Show.